Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you this week? As per usual, Gary, I am positively fantastic. It's midweek now. Um, we're both ahead of our work, I think, um, which is always nice to be. I hate having a lot of work left to do, or not even left to do, just to do. Um, but we're ahead of stuff, so we're recording the podcast a little bit earlier than usual. Um and other than that, are you on? You're still on placement now, are you? Yep. Last week of ENT, ear, nose, throat, or otorhinolaryngology. This week, and then next week, I've got a mix of dermatology and ophthalmology. So eyes and skin for two weeks. So that's where I'm at. Fantastic, right? And today's discussion, we are going to continue the discussion of this. I suppose you could call it training series. Um, obviously right now we're focusing a bit more on the resistance training side of things, but we will eventually get to more cardiovascular stuff. Although we have done a cardiovascular series previously, ultimately the goal of this series is to get you to a stage where at the end of it, if you've listened to everything, you know, you've taken your notes, you have your little notepad out while you're listening, you know, um, by the end of the series, the goal is to have you in a position where you understand we'll call it program design. You're like, okay, I understand why they've selected these rep ranges. I understand why they've selected these exercises. I understand why or how to manipulate volume, intensity, et cetera. And I know how to, you know, roughly broad strokes design out a training plan for your goals. Now, obviously, look, this is a podcast series. It's not like we can distill all of the knowledge down. Like there's huge books written on the topic 700,000 page books and it's still they don't even scratch the surface you know so it's like we're just getting the, the broad strokes here but hopefully that should leave you in a position where you understand this stuff enough so that you can get results right so today's discussion we're basically having a discussion of volume and intensity because you might hear those words thrown around about resistance training about like you know how to design your workout blah 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 right and ultimately first of all i'm presuming you've listened to the previous two episodes i believe um if you haven't then a lot of this stuff is just going to not make sense because it builds on that foundation right but the first thing that we want to you know go on from and we kind of talked about in the last episode is basically this perfect rep right because we have you know talked previously about a few different things you know uh, talking about how you can like learn anatomy that's a good idea how you should like learn exercise execution that kind of stuff exercise selection and what ultimately comes down to is like once you've done that kind of you know baseline stuff the first thing we need to really dive in on is uh, a discussion of i suppose the, the perfect rep but it all comes back to understanding what the goal of exercise is, which can, you know, further back episode, right? But what's the goal of the exercises that we're doing right now? What's the goal of the workout program right now? And ultimately, for a lot of people, a lot of the discussion of resistance training, the goal of the exercise, it comes back to tension, right? It's at the heart of the discussion overall, right? And that doesn't mean that we are choosing exercises or we're choosing you know, program design methods to always maximize tension, right? That's not always the case, right? Because we know, and we've previously discussed it, and we will discuss it in future when we're talking about progression models. Ultimately, the way you progress 
is that you progressively overload those muscles with tension. So it's progressive tension overload, right? And that's to do with resistance training, right? In terms of we want to build some more muscle. However, the goal of resistance training is not always to build more muscle, right? Oftentimes, you might actually want to, you know, just maintain what you've built. You might want to get other adaptations such as purely like strength gains. You know, maybe we're touching more on the neurological, like the efficiency of the muscles, but also, and this is a lot of the time, and this is, it's incredibly hard to discuss all of these nuances because there's so many different goals, but a lot of the time, like certain sporting athletes want to actually minimize tension, right? They actually want to minimize the amount of well, I was going to say wear and tear, that's not necessarily the right word, but the, the amount of work that their body is doing in terms of their actual muscles having to work. They want to maximize stuff like, you know, uh, recoil, you know, they want to maximize the elastic energy, you know, a lot of the time, say, for example, powerlifting, like they want to get their muscles to do less work. They want to maximize leverages. They want to maximize all these other things. And that's always the goal. Like obviously if you fill out a weight class and obviously at a certain stage, you're going to be, you're going to tap out that neurological efficiency and you're going to have to build more muscle. And it's not always the goal, but oftentimes you kind of want to do less work. You want to minimize tension, right? And so either way, at the heart of the discussion is this kind of thinking about tension on the muscles, right? Can you speak to that a little bit there, Gary? Yes, absolutely. And I think that one way to conceptualize this in your head is to think back to the first time that you tried any particular skill-based sport. I think martial arts are a good example, um, but there's also many other examples. Swimming is another great example where for beginners, you end up wasting so much energy to complete the same task in comparison to someone who is proficient. So you watch a boxer, you know, throw a jab or throw a combination of some sorts, and it just looks so smooth and it looks like they exerted barely any effort. And of course, you know, they've learned that over a number of years, whereas the beginner, they're just kind of putting all their muscle into it, all their energy. They're not efficient. They're not using their base appropriately. They don't know what they're doing. The same in any sort of grappling, whether it's wrestling or jujitsu or whatever. You'll find that when you first start that you're using all of your muscles to complete a certain movement and that the more advanced guys, what they end up doing is using as little energy as possible for each movement and then obviously keeping everything else in reserve and that's fundamentally the goal of of sport the vast majority of the time is that you complete x task with the minimal energy required because the assumption is obviously that you have to go and do that task over and over again unless it's just a one um about sport um, yeah, but even just to interrupt like you can kind of think of this as just like sport is to maximize efficiency right and you often see this like if you see like you know you watch the olympics and you see like a gymnast and it looks graceful it looks like mm-hmm. every single movement was like perfectly timed you know like that would be the ultimate expression of like maximal efficiency and that's again most sports are looking for that that's why we we think of sport as being graceful oftentimes it's because you're you're visually seeing that maximal efficiency which is you know it's real interesting because if you go into like you know the science of attraction and different things like that stuff that is like more symmetrical like even people who you know walk less symmetrically and as a result are you know not minimizing efficiency, but not getting maximal efficiency, like they are less attractive, you know, and it's real weird uh, that we have that built into us, but 
it is something to be aware of that, you know, humans innately like this uh, efficient uh, aesthetic, if you will. Yeah, and, and, and that's sport. You know, that's the first thing to understand is that that's sport or any sort of task where you're focused on the external performance. So that doesn't mean you have to perform a sport. It could be that you're someone who's going to the gym and you want to move the maximum amount of weight possible. To move the maximum amount of weight possible, you want to make it as easy as you can on your muscles, okay? And I know that doesn't sound intuitive initially, but when you compare it to bodybuilding, for example, with bodybuilding, what you're trying to achieve, and by bodybuilding, I use this term very loosely, not just competitive bodybuilding, but anyone who's trying to just build muscle or sculpt their physique, so to speak, those individuals are trying to get the most stimulus on their muscles, the most amount of muscle work done with the minimal amount of weight. Because if you can use less weight to get a given unit of internal stimulus, then you potentially get less fatigue from that. And you obviously have to load up less plates and all that. So that's actually a beneficial thing. So you're focused on the internal as opposed to the external. And that could be reflected in things like using a technique that's maybe more challenging on a particular muscle. So for example, you might flare your elbows out more on a bench press exercise to emphasize the chest a bit more, whereas you might even be stronger with the elbows tucked. That might be something that you do. There's many different examples of the technical um, modifications one could make, but all of them come back to trying to actually put more on the muscle as opposed to less, which is what you'd be doing in the performance domain. So that's the, the first thing that you have to understand. So other than your technique, then you've got things like tempo, for example, where you're slowing down the rep, Obviously, that's not necessarily the best way to move the maximum amount of weight, but it does increase stimulus to some degree. And then there's also things like intent or internal focus, where if you're doing a bench press, for example, if you slide your hands in together or have the intent of sliding your hands in together, you're going to feel your chest absolutely light up and you're adding another kind of force vector to the exercise so that it becomes more challenging but that means that you're able to lift more weight as a result. So if you were doing a one rep max with that technique, that'd be pretty inefficient. But inefficiency is the goal when you're trying to, to build muscle. Obviously, one of the things you might be thinking is that, oh, well, you guys, what about Olympic weightlifters and powerlifters and all these people who build loads of muscle? Like if, if they're chasing efficiency, how does that work? So we're not saying that you won't build plenty of muscle if you're trying to be as efficient as possible, you absolutely can. It's just, just not necessarily the, the primary goal. Um, if you're a purist in terms of just focusing on your physique or bodybuilding, trying to be inefficient to some degree by placing the maximum amount of tension on the desired muscles is generally a good idea. The way you can extrapolate this out to a more extreme example would be something like a leg extension or any isolation exercise. The most efficient way to get the weight to the top of the rep on a leg extension is just to swing from the bottom, you know, use all your body, raise your hips up, lean back and just swing to the top. You'll notice then that the weight moves very easily. But if you pull yourself down, you keep the hips locked, you sit a bit more upright and you slowly raise to the top and pause. It's very inefficient for the amount of weight that you can move, but the stimulus on your quads is totally different. So that's an extreme example. And the differences are going to be a little bit more subtle on most exercises, whether it be a squat or a bench press, et cetera. But on the isolation exercises, you can definitely start to appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah, I think especially when people use the 
oh, but what about Olympic weightlifters or what about powerlifters or what about blah, blah, blah. It, it is obviously a really good discussion because it does help to illuminate what we're talking about here because everyone knows that if you bounce the bench press, like if you bounce the bar off your chest in a bench press, you're going to lift more weight, right? Yeah. Like that's, that's you doing less work. That's you literally using that elastic energy. Boom. You're getting up, you know, four or five, six inches off the chest from just basically absorbing that uh, kinetic energy and, you know, bouncing it back, right? Like your chest cavity is doing the work rather than your muscles, right? And that is obviously why in actual competitive powerlifting, they're like, no, we actually have to pause for a second on the chest, right? They're trying to minimize to that extent, to a huge extent, the amount of, you know, recoil you can basically use that amount of uh, momentum um that you can use to just you know go through the movement but everyone knows that if we really were trying to maximize uh, efficiency maximize the amount of weight lifted you are realistically going to bounce that bar off your chest right and um, but that's in a way minimizing the amount of work that your chest is actually doing Right. And this is again, this is where this dichotomy is, because if we're if we're like a, a bodybuilder or someone that's in, interested in you know transforming their physique, if you want to build this like armor plated chest, you are going to slow down that movement. You're going to control that change of direction. You're going to try like modify your technique in you know different ways. Like you said, maybe you're flaring the elbows a little bit more. Maybe you are using a little bit more intent, like you're actively thinking of like, you know, pushing the hands in on the bar or maybe pushing the elbows in as you, you know, raise the bar, like you're going to do these different things, these different like internal cues so that you are actually maximizing the amount of tension on the chest, you know, whereas with something like powerlifting or especially with something like uh, Olympic lifting, you are trying to minimize the amount of work your muscles actually have to do. You're trying to maximize the amount of like momentum we can use the amount of stored energy we can use and this is why especially with olympic lifting you know it's so technique so technical it's so technique driven like you have to be so precise with your timing you know you're trying to catch that momentum perfectly and what you don't want to have happen is you catch it imperfectly and then your muscles have to do some work you know like if you see someone do that you're like oh it doesn't look clean or oh like you can see they struggled with it right so this is this is something that we have to get clear in our our, our mind like what is the perfect rep right the perfect rep is the rep that elicits the adaptations that we want right and how do we design that perfect rep well again it comes back to first of all knowing what goals you're actually aiming towards like are we trying to maximize strength you know and strength maybe just you know weight on the bar like in a competitive sense, like powerlifting or something, you know, but strength might also be, oh, we want to actually be strong while keeping tension on the muscle, you know, like you might have to do a sport or a, you know, uh, an activity that requires you to be quite slow and deliberate in your movements. Say, for example, like you might be doing chin-ups to improve your Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like maybe you're always getting choked out in a rear naked choke situation. And you're like, right, um, I just keep getting caught in it. I need to work on my technique. But in the meantime, I'm going to try get this kind of like a, you know, chin, chin up position, this elbow down position um, stronger so that I have I, I buy myself a few extra seconds, right? So I can, you know, wiggle out of it, do something else, right? So in that case, you're like, okay, well, I could just boom, bang through these chin up reps and like have very little tension on the muscle, not control that top position whatsoever. It's basically just momentum getting you through it. That's probably not going to translate as much into improvements in 
the goal that you have for that exercise than something like, oh, a slower controlled really thoughtful movement where you're actually, you know, contracting the muscles, actually, you know, slowly going through the movement. Um, So you have to be very clear on what you're actually trying to achieve, right? And the beauty of all of this is that, and it's also a little bit of a, a, a bad thing about it is that you can get results without ever having to think about this stuff, right? And that's that's great in a way that it's like okay that means that you don't have to necessarily you know spend an an overly uh you know energetic amount of time thinking about this stuff and going like oh well how do i maximize the exact adaptations that i'm trying to build because like you said like you can see powerlifters that are you know jacked out of their mind you know it's like okay well clearly you know powerlifting builds muscle right and that is true but it's basically an inefficiency that does that you know um, and obviously like again weight classes and some people do want to actually look a certain way etc right um but that is good in that aspect that it's like you can basically get results as a byproduct of you know just going through the motions even <clears throat> but that only works up until a point right and obviously like that's fine if you are just this like perfectly built human for these exercises like you know you're built for the squat and like you squat and it's just perfect tension throughout you know it's, it works all the muscles that you want to work it's not like a low back exercise that's fine you can basically just have at it bang away through that exercise see you later you're gonna get results right but if you are not you know built for these different exercises that you're trying to do you're going to have to think a bit more about first of all your exercise selection that would be the best thing to do but then also think a bit more about like how do I manipulate this rep to actually get the adaptations that I want, right? Um, and this is, again, especially true if we're trying to really maximize, we'll call it physique change, you know, muscle building, because while you can just build muscle as a byproduct of, you know, resistance training, just even going through the motions, if we're trying to build the most amount of muscle possible, we're going to have to be a bit more precise with our actions, right? So do you have anything to say there, Gary? Yeah, just one thing to add on there, and it's it's related to the what you were just talking about there at the end. So if we're talking about, let's say, the powerlifting, the weight, Olympic weightlifting example again, you know, you can turn around and say, oh, well, once you just take the muscle to failure or close to that point, why does it even matter? Because we equal out the work on the muscle, because let's say you do eight slow reps versus 12 or 15 bouncy reps. Like, what's the difference? The muscles are still being taken towards failure. But what you have to realize is that for, uh, for every you know rep that you're completing and every load that you're lifting, there's forces also being distributed to muscles that aren't necessarily the target muscles, but also the joints um, across which those muscles are acting. And that really tends to be the differentiating factor that's important here, where if you're doing powerlifting to build muscle, powerlifting tends to carry a higher um, injury risk than bodybuilding, excuse me, bodybuilding out of the strength sports, at least from the research that's there. And to be honest, like I wouldn't put too much faith in it, but the b- bodybuilding has the lowest injury rate of all strength sports. And it's very intuitive why that would be the case because well, one, there's no exercise you have to do. So if you hurt yourself, you can just change exercises and find something that feels better. But also again, bodybuilders are focused on that internal focus. So they can get the same stimulus with lighter weights or by changing intent or changing range of motion, et cetera. Whereas if you're a powerlifter, 
you're trying to maximize the weight all the time. And that comes with additional forces on the joints, additional risk of, you know, if you do lose your position, the absolute load is greater and therefore there's more um, potential for accidents. So they're the things that are really important because especially over the long term, um, the bottleneck for people in terms of making progress is very often injury and not necessarily catastrophic injury, but just niggly injuries that flare up. Because if you need to get to, let's say 20, 25 sets per week because you're advanced to train your quads or your chest or whatever. And when you get to 15 to 20, you're no longer able to tolerate more because your just shoulder starts to get at you or your knee starts to get at you. Then you're left in this position of kind of perpetual maintenance where, yeah, you might make some progress, but you're no longer able to apply the stimulus that you need to in order to, to keep going. So remember that difference in your own head when you're, you're thinking about the difference here, because it's very easy to just reduce it all down to, oh, well, it's all just, you know, taking the muscle close to failure so I can do what I want. But long term, that, that doesn't necessarily work out that way. Yeah. And further to that as well, like we have to go back to the discussion we had previously about like exercise selection and execution and we touched on it in the last episode but if you're choosing these exercises like you're doing powerlifting, you're like oh it's the squat the bench the deadlift like we're just assuming that you know the prime movers if you will are the muscles that are going to be taken to failure but as we discussed in the last episode like you could be doing a squat for quad development and the only thing that actually ever fails is your low back you know that's the thing that fatigues it's never actually your quads so you are not actually getting the amount of stimulus that your quads potentially need before your low back gives out or something you know so we have to think about that in terms of what are our actual goals and again the ideal discussion here is a discussion of exercise execution and selection you know it's like if we can get those you're like oh you're doing a squat for quad development and this is just not a quad exercise for you you know it's like we ideally would be choosing a better exercise but again if we have to do the squat for whatever reason like it's you know, you're a power lifter and you're trying to build muscle with that exercise you know if you do need to build your quads potentially we're doing a different exercise you know we're modifying the reps perhaps you know we're actually making it so that this exercise is performed a little bit slower maybe we've slightly changed the bar position you know maybe you were in a lower bar position now you're in a high bar position when we're using this exercise for more quad development and then also you're controlling the tempo so that you actually can stay in that upright position you're not ever getting out of that position you're not like you know slightly tipping forward in that squat even though you're trying to use your quads and now all of a sudden it's a low back exercise a glute exercise etc right so we are modifying potentially the exercise but also we can modify the way we perform that exercise so that we can bias tension wherever we want it right because like you said like you could go you could literally say oh well as long as we you know a kind of equate for failure uh, in terms of oh you did eight sets of this and you did eight sets of this it's like oh well it's all the same at the end of the day and it's like that's not true because we're not actually getting the same stimulus on the muscle itself. Right. And again, that goes back to the thing that I opened this podcast with and saying that it's tension that we're looking for, especially for muscle building. Right. So if it's muscle building, we want tension on the actual target muscle. So it needs to be on the target muscle. It's not just equating volume on paper. It's equating volume internally. You know, it's what's actually on your muscles. Like if I did a squat and Gary did a squat, they're two different things. Even if we say, oh, it's a high bar squat. Like for me, the only thing that's ever going to grow uh, from that is my ass, you know? Whereas for Gary, like I could literally do like so much volume for squats. You know, my low back 
perfectly fine, even though it is a bit more of a low back exercise for me, you know, I could literally do 20 sets and I've done 20 sets of squats per week, you know, um, Whereas for Gary, he might do the same. And all of a sudden his adductors, literally he's five sets in per week and his adductors are like, oh, this is, this is terrible, you know, which indicates two things. First of all, the adductors for him are going to be a limiting factor. So that could be, you know, injury, like we talked about, that could be, you know, little niggly stuff, whatever. He's not going to be able to complete the overall volume, but in doing those five sets, perhaps it's a much better quad stimulus for him than for me, you know? So those five sets might be equal to my 20 sets in terms of the actual amount of tension that was put on the quads. Because for me, again, like I'm tall, long femurs, like it's just not a quad exercise for me, you know? So we have to think of all those things. And it's incredibly hard if you are, you know, a beginner uh, or trying to design your own workout programs, because you just think of exercise in terms of like choreography, in terms of oh, this is how a squat should look, you know? You're not necessarily thinking of, like the previous discussion we had about exercise selection, exercise execution, and you potentially don't know enough to be able to modify those exercises to make them better for your overall goal. You know, does that make sense, Gary? Check, yeah, it absolutely does. Um, we can, yeah, I think I think we've added enough on that specific yeah. point. So we can move I, on. Think, I think that's all good, right? So the first thing, well, the next thing I just want to say is, we've kind of been touching on it but there are a few ways that we can just modify that exercise to build this perfect rep and the few things that we're thinking of is first of all tempo like what is the tempo of this exercise like i'm not even talking about like uh you know there used to be this like super slow tempo kind of cult <laughs> with exercise you know it's like we want to have like eight second eccentrics and eight second concentrics and like we're just purely trying to maximize the amount of time under tension and that's not like there's some truth to it but it's like usually that sacrifices the amount of load that we're using and as a result of that you know you're not actually maximizing tension on the muscles right so there has to be a bit of a give and take however we want to control tempo because tempo is one way that we can standardize technique right but it also allows us to standardize control like you're actually controlling that movement it's not a case of you're just using momentum and again it could be the case that you're prescribing a tempo that is to use momentum. Like again, you're a, a power lifter and you're like, okay, it's going to be controlled eccentric. But as soon as you get to depth, we're just fucking changing direction. Boom. Let's go. You know, and like you're trying to maximize that amount of, you know, elastic recoil in the joints and whatever else, you know? And <clears throat> so tempo is the first thing that we're kind of manipulating and we're using, we're manipulating that for increases ideally in tension in different points of the movement perhaps or to minimize the amount of momentum being used or potentially again to maximize it again comes back to what the goal is right um so we need to we need to think about tempo there are other reasons why we would use tempo in terms of it actually allows you to change the forces at play in that exercise and again one of those ones like we said the bench press this is why in competitive you know powerlifting they pause at the chest because it actually does significantly change the forces at play. Um, so that is something to be aware of. And, you know, discussing tempo is a much larger discussion and it's very nuanced in terms of, as I said, like there's the super slow crowd. There's also the oh, tempo doesn't fucking matter crowd. And then there's also like, you know, obviously some truth to both sides. But what are your thoughts there, Gary, on just, just tempo? Because if we're talking about building the perfect rep, you know, it's not just the case of, oh, okay, I'll just do the, the reps and I've picked a better exercise. I've, I've, you know, done all the other stuff that we've previously talked about. Like you have to actually have to specify like what that rep should look like. 
Yeah. So from my perspective, from my perspective, like tempo always matters because the only way it can't matter is if there's no difference in properties of the load, regardless of how fast it drops, which is clearly in violation of, of physics. Go ahead. Basically, like it's like, you know, the dimensions of this world. It's like we have three dimensions and a fourth one is time, you know, so you can't yeah. just ignore it. You know, that's like saying like, and I, always, I always use the example when you try to explain like the space time continuum, which sounds like you're like, Oh, I'm real fucking smart, but it's basically just like anyone. It's really intuitive. Like I can't just say to you, Oh, meet me at, I don't know, O'Connell street, you know, O'Connell bridge or whatever. You know, I can't just say that. Like that means that's meaningless without a time dimension. I'm like, okay, meet me at O'Connell's bridge on Saturday at 2 p.m. You know, you need to have that time dimension, right? It needs to be specified. So if we are moving our body through space and time, which is what exercise is, we need to specify both of those things. We need to be like, okay, this is how it should look. This is how you are moving through the three dimensions. And this is the time aspect of it as well. That's layered out on top. Yeah. And, and I mean, like, it's, it's something that you learn and I'm pretty sure like junior search science in, in the physics section that like, if you drop something, faster you know versus just placing it down and, and to be honest you learn that as a kid you know if you if you drop an egg from one centimeter onto a onto the floor it might crack you know it might not break but if i drop it from a meter like very clearly there's a, there's a big difference there because it's accelerating or if you smash it down versus if you just place it down there's differences in the property it's not just about the mass of the egg okay and it's very similar when it comes to resistance training because if i'm squatting hundred kilos and, you know, lower the weight in four seconds, then I've already done more muscular work to get down to the bottom because I've actually, you know, decelerated the load or stopped it from accelerating further. So it's slower when it gets to the bottom point. And as a result, there's, if you were to look at like a graph of what would happen to the load in terms of the forces you're dealing with, if you drop really quickly, it's going to be a big spike at the bottom. Whereas if you drop slowly, it might be a slight spike as you're changing direction, but very little. And you do feel that yourself where, you know, if you come down on a bench press really slowly, the change of direction feels less abrupt. It might still be really challenging from a muscular perspective, but you don't get that same experience where you'll see people in the gym dropping weight onto their chest. They get it up three inches where the bounce took them to, and then they just fail there. And you're wondering, you're like, God, they, they look like they were moving it really quickly. How did they just fail? And it was because it wasn't people going like, Oh, I have a sticking point at this point. And it's like, yeah. no, that's not a sticking point. That's, that's the part where you have to work. <laughs> yeah. It's the part where the bounce won't take you through anymore. So look, tempo always matters. That's the first thing. It always matters. It's just a question to what degree. And this ultimately comes back to, the specific uh, context. So for example, I work with a lot of people in pain and very often what I'll do is, is use specific tempos to reduce the load at, at different points in the range of motion. So for example, if someone has um, patellofemoral pain or patellar tendinopathy, so some sort of knee pain, what I'm typically going to be looking for is slower tempo on any quad exercises that we're doing, because I don't want that abrupt spike in forces at the bottom um, where they might be in a little bit more of a vulnerable position. It also gives them the psychological boost because they feel like, okay, more in control at every point in that position. You see that again, very often in squatting, for example, where people will say, oh God, you know, I felt like I had it, but I, I just couldn't go through with it. Where they get to the bottom of the squat, they bounce and then they bail. They let the weight go. You know, they weren't in control. So that's another thing um, that's important there. And then of course, from a, just a basic training perspective, putting the rehab and pain populations aside, 
you'll know yourself where the part of the rep that is most challenging or that you would want to skip is. For pressing exercises, it's typically at the bottom. People try to avoid that, whether that be through changing their body position, raising one shoulder up, um, bouncing off the chest, etc. That's always the point where people are going to use some sort of kind of jerking movement. On a bicep curl, it's typically at the bottom. They get that weight going and then they can kind of lean back and get it up. Whereas if you start really slow from the bottom of the rep, now you have to work throughout and it's far, far more challenging. You know, on a, a chin up, for example, it's typically that, that well, it, it's both the top and the bottom really, but any sort of pull down exercise, you'll find someone gets it to the point where maybe it comes to their eyeballs and then they kind of just like pigeon poke their head over the top of the bar for the rest of the reps. They didn't really do anything else. They kind of just poke their way up. So they're the, the par parts of the rep that people typically rush. And you'll analyze that in your own training. Ask yourself, what part of the rep do I normally kind of uh, rush or jerk or I try to avoid it? And that's typically the point where I would um, try to focus on slowing down the tempo a bit more, especially early on when I'm trying to get someone to grips with feeling their muscles work at all points in the rep. So if it's a lap pull down, if I can get them to really focus on that bottom position and get down there nice and slowly and pause holding position, they're going to feel their lats absolutely light up in that position. Whereas they may never, they may never have felt that if when it typically gets to their eyeballs or their forehead, they just kind of throw the head over or change their body position. Yeah, hundred percent. And this is also goes back to the discussion we had in the previous podcast about like exercise selection and execution, because like you might be choosing an exercise like a chin up, you know, you might actually just be like, right, I actually want to stop at that point. You know, I don't want to actually get into this. I'm not going to use the chin up to get into this shortened range lap position. I'm like, I'm going to use it for something else, you know, and you're going to use a different exercise. Like maybe you're like, oh, I'm going to actually use this lat pull down here to maximize this, this kind of shorter position than I get into in a lat or in a chin up, you know? So we have to have that discussion, but either way, it has to be informed. It has to be, you know, uh, the goal has to be almost explicitly stated where it's like, oh, I'm actually using this exercise for X, you know? Um, so as, as you said, tempo has to be controlled. At least it has to be, you know, standardized control has to be controlled. Um, and we have to basically know why we are doing this exercise in this manner, because oftentimes you'll see people and this we see this a lot in coaching in terms of we'll do we'll say to do an exercise and someone will do it the way that they've always done it and we can be like oh actually the reason you've gotten the results that you've gotten up until this point with this exercise is because of xyz you know it's like you are doing it you're going through the motions at this point where you should be controlling it you know you're just kind of like using a bit more momentum here and you know, it's like okay let's actually you know change things up like i had a client relatively recently where he had been doing all these exercises that we had prescribed for him for his chest and stuff. And um, like he'd been doing them previously, but once we actually started coaching, I was like, look, we actually, you need to relearn this technique. You need to completely like strip this back. And we stayed at the same weight for it was the incline bench was the one that was really getting him. You know, it's like, we need to just stay at the same weight. And um, I think it was actually the bench press as well. I was like, we need to just stay at the same weight, standardized technique. You're not actually controlling this bottom position. You know, you're able for a much heavier weight, you know, if we were to use a lot of momentum, but you're not in control, you know, this is just going to be limited by momentum at some stage, you know, um, or, you know, potentially shoulder pain or potentially other you know, pain somewhere else. Right. So like, we actually just need to strip it all back, stay at a certain weight until we are very confident that you are in control throughout this movement, that you are in control of that weight from the top of the position to the bottom of the position, and that you're actually doing the 
the the muscular work that we want you know so that is that was something that we had to kind of like strip back and really control for that individual and that is something that a lot of people find themselves having to do and the unfortunate thing is a lot of people only start thinking about that once they're like well i've got shit results so far or i'm not getting results at all or they're like oh i'm fucking in pain or i have injury now it's like this ideally we want to start with this excuse me we want to start with this discussion and this thought process rather than ending with it you know so look i think that makes sense for most people the rep the fundamental unit it needs to be thought of right because all training is is multiple reps done over time you know so we need to have that dialed in right but then on top of that and i actually think this is this is the stuff that gets overly focused on in all of the discussions about health fitness training whatever it's like we'll always talk about volume and intensity and right that's the the kind of title of this episode but it's all meaningless all meaningless unless you can actually first of all say that the exercise is standardized and that the rep is standardized like you can read all of the research and be like oh we need x amount of sets per week or x amount of reps blah 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 but unless you see those exercises being performed unless you see those reps being performed and you're like oh i know what that actually looked like like it's it's all meaningless the research is just fucking garbage as far as i'm concerned like if you look at any of that research and they don't have videos linked to how they got those trainees to perform those exercises just don't even read the research as far as i'm concerned it's junk you know and someone might agree, disagree with that someone might be like oh well like you could you know say it's whatever blah blah but i have literally seen some of these top researchers put up videos on like instagram of like oh this is how we perform like I don't know, a quad extension. And you're like, what the fuck was that? You know? And it's like, if you're saying that that's, we're using that as our standardization for volume for whatever, it's like, that's not like, that's not the exercises that other people are doing or like a squat or whatever. It's like, it's impossible to say, right? So while everyone gets caught up on the fucking discussions about volume and intensity and they look at the research for that, it's all irrelevant unless the rep is standardized, unless the, first of all, the exercise execution is standardized, but in doing so the rep itself is standardized. What are your thoughts on that, Gary? Yeah, the rep is the unit to start with. And I think the, a very simple way of thinking about this would be if I tell you, Paddy, that I've got 10 banknotes in my wallet, like what does that actually mean? You know, are we going to just quantify it just as the number of notes or are we going to say, is it five year or 10 year or 20 year or 50 or clearly that matters. And that's kind of the way you should be thinking about your sets, you know, that saying, oh, I did 20 sets. Like, yeah, it's informative. And, you know, if you do have 20 bank notes in your wallet, like, yeah, there's probably a decent bit of cash in there. It's probably not a fiver. But then again, do I really think he has 10 hundred euro notes? Like not so sure. Um, so when it comes to like training, I, I kind of think of it in the same way. If someone tells me they're doing 20 sets, I'm like, right. They're probably not, you know, 500 euro sets, you know, they're okay. They're probably not five euro sets because the person has been training for a while, but you know, I'm just not hundred percent sure of, of what exactly we're looking at. Like, what does that actually mean? And first we start with the rep, you know, how do your reps look? Um, and then, so how does the individual rep look? That's the first level of analysis. Then are you replicating how that rep looks from rep to rep to rep to rep to rep? Um, or is the first rep totally different to the eighth rep, you know, cause that can happen. And then how close are you getting to, to failure? It doesn't mean you have to take it to failure, but it gives us an idea of how hard you're working in each of those respective sets. Because if someone tells me they're doing 20 sets 
And then I look at them training and they're genuinely exhibiting perfect technique and control. It looks like all the exercises are selected well and they're taking everything to failure. And they're still saying, I'm recovering perfectly. I don't have any muscle soreness. I feel like I need more volume to progress. I feel great after my sessions, no fatigue. I'm like, okay, fair enough. Like that's enough of a reason for me to say, okay, maybe you do need more volume. But if I look at someone training and, you know, their reps are varying loads, their technique is off, you know, the individual reps don't look great. I'm not going to be in a rush for them to be increasing their volume. I'd rather that we standardize the rep first and foremost. So that's absolutely um, my perspective. I tend to, or I tend to find that in coaching that when people work with me and they send me training videos and everything, they tend to, and even just by virtue of getting coaching in the first place, independent of the videos, they tend to get more out of less sets when working with a coach. I think that goes for most things really, where if you're being watched or you feel like you're being watched or you're accountable to someone, you put in a bit more effort and you're a bit more honest with each rep and each set. That's especially the case if you're working with a trainer in person, because they're not going to give you a break. You know, they're not going to let you off with a really crap set. They're going to say, hold on now, you know, pause that for a second. I want you to really focus on, you know, sliding the hands in like this. And I want you to slow down the rep and they're encouraging you every single rep. And that's one of the immediate things people notice when they learn work with someone in person as a, with a personal trainer, that the quality of their sessions just rapidly improves. And this is why a lot of trainers will get away with being able to train a client for just an hour, sometimes even 30 minutes, because that's so much more effective then the 30 minutes or 60 minutes that the person trains in the gym themselves, you know? Yeah, 100%. So look, it needs to be like, again, the rep is the fundamental unit. There's, there's no escaping that, right? So moving on to discussion about volume and intensity, right? The first thing we want to do is talk about intensity because like you said, and I would definitely agree, I think the vast majority of people are, well, especially... Yeah, I'm going to say the vast majority of people could probably get more from doing less, right? They could probably spend a little bit more time doing less volume overall, which we'll call, we'll call volume the amount of sets that you're doing. You know, that's probably the best way to think about it. Um, maybe for different muscle groups, maybe for different movements, whatever. It's still the number of sets, right? Um, people could probably get away with doing less volume if they actually got their reps perfect, you know, like if you actually put more time into, okay, I'm only allowed to do one set of these exercises, you know, maybe it's still the same five, six, seven, whatever amount of exercises that you do, but you're like, I'm only allowed to do one set for those. Like you have to maximize the amount of stimulus you get from that one set, right? People would probably get more than that, more from that than doing, you know, three sets, right? But once you've built up, that capacity to you know actually work hard in that one set and get the most from it at a certain stage you're going to have to do more volume overall right but before we talk about volume the amount of sets that we do we actually have to be at the right intensity level right and there's a few different things to this the first thing is actually picking the right we'll call it percentage of one rm like you know that's classically defined intensity um that's the first thing we have to be at the right we'll use rep ranges they're probably a bit of a better target to talk about for most people than percentages um but then also on top of that there is a little bit of a discussion of you know we'll call it rating of perceived exertion and then also and or i suppose uh, reps in reserve you know so this is what people classically you know quantify as 
you know, intensity. Um, so the first part of the discussion is there are a number of rep ranges and those different rep ranges do elicit slightly different adaptations, right? And they also come with different pros and cons. And we're not going to go into all of the nuances here. Again, this is a bit of an overview, but generally speaking, you could probably break down the rep ranges into less than five. And you could definitely further categorize that of like one to three and then three to five, you know, if you wanted to. Um, but then we have that kind of, we'll just call it less than five rep range. And then we have the, we'll call it six to eight rep range. Then we have this kind of nine to 12 rep range. And then we, you know, again we could you know maybe make different arguments but we'll say this 13 to 20 rep range and then we have this like 20 plus rep range and that just includes the fucking gamut up to fucking a thousand reps if you wanted to right and that you could break it down into that and again you could break it down into different categories like it's it's somewhat arbitrary that i'm saying like six to eight like maybe you say six to nine you know it's like that could be the, the the cutoff but each of those have a slightly different end outcome you know a slightly different targeted adaptation but what are your thoughts there gary first of all on breaking those rep ranges down into that do you think of a similar you know rep range target whatever and then also speak to uh what those different rep ranges are actually doing a little bit more yeah i like i think one to three is somewhat distinct from three to five and then i've got my you know five days and then whatever up to you know 20 and then beyond for crazy people you know effectively most of the time i'm programming the five to 20 rep rep range the vast majority of the time you know i've got people who do more strength work or they want to focus a bit more on their strength or i want them to do some singles or whatever and we go below that five rep range but in general what we're doing is when we're working with less than five reps we're focused a little bit more on either maximal strength or limit strength. So taking it closer to 100% of your one rep max, the max amount of force that you can produce within the constraints of that exercise. Um, Or what we're doing is we're focusing on maybe high velocity strength or powered explosiveness, whatever you want to call it, um, or just kind of technical prowess, we could say. Um, So for example, if someone is doing like a clean and jerk type exercise or hang cleans or something like that, I'm generally doing, you know, less reps with someone if they're doing that, because we're trying to master the technique. We're trying to be super explosive. And what you'll find is that if you're trying to be explosive with an exercise, especially if it's got a few technical components, if you're doing more than, you know, five reps, you're trying to do sets of 12 or whatever, the technique just starts to degrade. And that's one of the things you see very frequently in CrossFit. It would, would, would be one of the primary criticisms of a lot of CrossFit gyms would be that, they don't um, ensure people have a solid base of weightlifting prior to having them do very high reps of advanced weightlifting exercises. It's not always the case. You know, a lot of CrossFit gyms don't do that, but it is often the case. Um, So the less skilled you are at an activity, the more your technique is going to degrade when fatigue comes to bite you effectively. Again, anyone that's done a martial art, that becomes very obvious. You're doing something in drilling and you're like, oh, this is easy. This is great. I've got this idea. And then you're fatigued and it's three minutes in and you're dying and your brain's just not even working anymore. Exact same thing happens in the gym. You're doing something like uh, like the clean and jerk and the snatch and those types of exercises are, are, are kind of easy to understand in that sense. But even like the a back squat, what you'll see someone do is as they get towards the end of the set, they're no longer 
like holding the bar like they were previously. It's in a different position on their back. They're not bracing the same way they were. They're not pushing their knees out as they were previously. And now their technique is just kind of all over the place. So when we're working with those lower rep ranges at lower percentages of one rep max, that's something I like to, to introduce. So an example of the different the differentiation there would be if we were working on maximal strength, it might be sets of three as 80 to 90% of one rep max or something. Whereas if it was more skill, explosiveness, power-based, it might be sets of three as 50 to 70%, you know, very easy. It sounds very easy, but you're still focusing on, you know, accelerating the weight as fast as you can and so on. As we move beyond that, then we're generally getting into ranges that would be considered hypertrophy ranges. Okay. Where they're a bit more effective from a muscle building perspective. There's less fatigue. You're using less absolute load. Um, and you can still take the muscle close to the point of failure. Once you get beyond kind of 15 to 20, the, it becomes as much of a practical issue um, as it is an adaptation issue because most people won't push themselves to genuine failure um, in the 20 plus rep range. You know, there comes a point where they feel the burn and they're like, oh yeah, that's enough. But realistically, they could have 10, 20 reps left, literally. You know, you see this all the time where someone does, a set with a weight that they thought they'd do for 10 to 15 and they get like 30 to 40 reps, especially at a seminar or something like that. And they're just pushed to keep on going. So when programming those super high rep ranges, like I'm very rarely going um, north of 20, um, unless it's a very easy exercise to repeat from a technical perspective, or I know there's a specific reason that we would want to repeat it. Uh, or I know the person is already very technically proficient and they're not going to have their technique degrading from um, those high reps and the fatigue that comes from that. So I guess that'd be my, my summary of the, the role of repetition ranges. Again, just to reinforce the point that most training in the five to 20 repetition range, um, five to 15, a lot of the time, to be honest. And that obviously corresponds to a certain level of your percentage of your one rep max. You don't need to test your one rep max to be able to calculate percentages, but to be honest, even just using reps in reserve or RPE, should be fine. You shouldn't necessarily need percentages. Um, if you need to calculate your estimated one rep max based on your 12 rep max, for example, you can go on different websites that will estimate it for you. Typically, it's something like your 12 rep max is probably around 70% um, of your one rep max. That might be 65% on some exercises. It might be 75 or 80 on other exercises. This, again, is, is one of the the things that varies quite a bit between people is, you know, for example, muscle fiber type and many different um, individual adaptations, even psychological considerations where some people are really good at high reps. And as a result, when they do a 12 rep max or something, their prediction for the one rep max might be a total overestimation, whereas someone else might be just really good at low reps and they do a 12 rep max and it's a total underestimation of the one rep max. I'd be in the former camp great at higher reps when it comes to the more maximal stuff. It's just not for me. Whereas you get a power lifter and they're the total opposite. They do more than five reps and they're just dead, you know? So um, yeah, that was a bit, bit of a tangent, but, but very important nonetheless. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, just to kind of, we'll call it quickly summarize it. Basically less than five reps. We're talking about strength, you know, that's true. Whatever way you want to categorize that. Like I like to think of it as just purely uh, neurological efficiency, you know, and that's, in my mind, that's how I think of it, right? And again, like you said, that doesn't necessarily mean that those five reps are to failure. It could be we're maximizing efficiency by virtue of, you know, doing a lighter weight or lighter weight, but really just, you know, 
focusing on perfect, perfect technique, you know, fast movement, et cetera, whatever it is, right? So less than five strength or neurological efficiency, whatever way you want to think of it. Then that kind of, we'll say six to 12 rep range, you know, somewhere in that rep range, you know, that's your kind of, we'll call it hypertrophy rep range. Like that's the, the muscle building rep range, right? And obviously again, the closer you are down to the lower end of that, like we'll call it the six to eight, like you're slightly biasing a little bit more strength like it's not like that neurological efficiency stuff just ends at five reps you know it's still like you're still biasing you know heavier loads you know so you get better at lifting heavier loads and then that kind of we'll say nine to twelve rep range like you start getting a bit more bias towards endurance we'll say right then above 12 reps and you know up to 20 25 you know we're still in that kind of muscle building area but it's definitely a little bit more towards um, endurance side of things. Like you're definitely getting better like capillarization of the muscle. You're definitely getting better, you know, mitochondrial biogenesis and different things that are more on the almost cardiovascular side of things. Right. And then when you start getting into just the like 25 plus, it's basically just how, how good can you buffer acidosis? You know, it's like, that's, that's basically what you're building which is again, part of endurance, part of that. And obviously they do still build muscle, but like Gary said, it becomes a bit of a practical thing where most people are going to feel that acidosis. They're going to feel that buildup of even blood in the muscle. Um, and they're just not going to push beyond that. You know, like it's, it's just, it's just impractical for a lot of people, you know? Um, and if we're talking about, you know, general population, where should you be rep range wise? It's probably going to be in that six to 15 rep range. Like you could say six to 20 rep range, but somewhere in that rep range is probably where you're going to do the majority of your work, right? So we have that. We've got the perfect rep. We've got that ideal where we're working somewhere in that six to 15 rep range. Cool, right? Now we have to talk about sets. Like how much volume are we actually doing, right? And this is an impossible question to actually answer because it is so individual, right? And as I said, like, I just don't agree with the research because I don't think they've standardized reps. So we can't even use the research to fully guide us, right? So we actually have to do uh, a bit of, we'll call it practical research. And some of that practical research does actually align with what they say in the more formal research, but I still don't trust the formal research, right? But practically speaking, if we talk to like bodybuilders, if we talk to, you know, different people that are trying to maximize their physique, they probably would say that 10 to 20 sets for a certain muscle group is probably where we want to be if we're looking to maximize um, like muscle building, right? And again, obviously individual response, different exercise selection, et cetera, et cetera. There's a huge amount of variables. A lot of them we've already talked about, right? And then in terms of strength building, and we're talking about this like below five rep range, generally you're not going to see someone say, oh yeah, I need 20 sets of, you know, below five rep waxes for a given uh, muscle group. Like someone's not going to be like, oh, I need, I do like a triples and I need to do 20 sets of that per week to see uh development of strength you know that's generally not the case if we're talking about purely strength development usually it's less sets you know in terms of the amount that needs to be done and again that's just from a practical aspect from people talking about it and um, and that could just be a practical aspect as well where you know if you do more of that heavy work like your joints are just not going to uh and um, be pleased with you you know but what are your thoughts gary on how do we actually 
like how much work should we be doing in terms of sets just as a generic now obviously again this is going to need to be modified for the individual but are we just using this generic you know 10 to 20 sets per week seems to be a good place to be at maybe we might modify that as well by saying that start on the lower end maximize that and then see what you need to titrate up um, and obviously we'll get onto a further discussion of like allocating volume for what you actually want like there's no point being like oh all my muscles need 20 sets when your upper body is fucking you know jacked out of your mind and you have literally fucking no calves whatsoever calling myself out here and um, you know what i mean it's like you know maybe you want to allocate volume accordingly you know we'll get on to that discussion but you know are we just starting with this generic 10 to 20 sets or what are your thoughts there yeah i mean 10 to 20 i would generally agree with and, and to be honest you know i i with the caveat that I don't really coach bodybuilders or people who are just super into hypertrophy on its own. Um, most of my clients are in the 10 to 15 range, to be honest. Um, as I think back to my programs, especially because a lot of my clients are training three to four days per week, you know, they're not training five to six days per week. I have a, a few who are people who are focused more so on just muscle building, but especially when it comes to just the weight training side of things, we're generally doing three to four sessions per week. So if a person's hitting a muscle group twice per week and we're doing like a full, full upper lower type split, let's say, you know, they might get four sets for chest in their first session, maybe three in the second, and then maybe they get six in the, the third um, with the upper. Um, they're hitting it three times per week, but still we're talking just about like 13 sets per week. So it's not crazy, um, but that's what I tend to, to prescribe for the vast majority of people. People make great progress in 10 to 15 sets, sometimes even less, especially when it comes to, to strength. I don't um, see strength as requiring that much um volume especially early on for people um i think longer term there might be something to be said for lower effort and more sets um for strength but i mean that's a, a different discussion um but most of my clients yeah 10 to 20 sets per week i can't think of the last time i've had someone doing more than 20 sets per week for a given muscle group i think i do have maybe one or two people but it's one muscle group and it's kind of 20 to 25 and that's typically how i would um basically implement that higher volume strategy i'm very rarely having someone do 25 to 30 sets across the board all muscle groups but it might be that they have a weak chest they're trying to bring that up so we hammer that a bit more and that was the example that i had recently with a client where i think he's doing around 24 to 26 sets for chest per week but then for his back, you might just be doing 12 to 16 or something, you know? So we're generally kind of taking something from somewhere, putting that muscle group a bit more on maintenance and then driving on with something else in the meantime, because you just don't have infinite recovery capacity and you will find yourself running into issues, especially it, it depends how you, you categorize your volume. But if you're doing 25 sets for chest and 25 sets for shoulders and 25 sets for back, there's often a lot of crossover there using the same joints, similar muscles, and that can just catch up on you quite quickly. Yeah, hundred percent. And again, that goes to more of the discussion of like allocating the volume yeah. um, to where you actually want it or need it. Like the lowest I've generally seen, again, I coach mainly people that are looking to, you know, transform their physique and then also not just, you know, purely focus on physique. Like they want to move better. They want to perform better. They want to, you know, generally, 
you know, be better humans overall. It's not just like, oh, I want to look a certain way, which, you know, we might change our or modify our recommendations as a result. But generally speaking, like six sets per week, that's kind of what I've seen as the lowest effective dose. Now, that also doesn't include like crossover stuff, you know, where it's like, oh, like maybe you're doing like upper chest work, like that's clearly working your, you know, anterior delts more. So maybe we could just do less anterior delt work, you know, like, so there is obviously crossover, etc. But generally, you know, unless we're just purely keeping something on, you know, bare bones maintenance, like you could probably just maintain with like maybe like two to three hard sets per week, you know, it's like very little is actually needed to maintain. Um, but if we're talking about like, what's the minimal effective dose to see some sort of progress, I've kind of seen that in my own training itself. And then also the training of, you know, the fucking hundreds of clients that I've coached, it's kind of at that six set limit. Now, again, that's just the way I train them, et cetera. Um, but, you know, we could use that maybe as a, a bottom range, right? But like you said, like I rarely have people up above that kind of 20 sets per week. And if I do, generally speaking, it is, you know, or we're working on this one muscle group or this, you know, grouping of muscles, like maybe it's the lower body. We're like, oh, we just want to bring up the lower body. So we're doing that, you know, with a higher amount of work. And generally the way I'll do this is like, say, for example, we have like four days per week training. We want to bias the lower body. You know, we might do like quads and chest one day and then like hamstrings or glutes or whatever you want to categorize a posterior chain the next day with back, you know? So it's like, we can basically just have the upper body on the back burner. You know, we're getting, you know, three to five sets maybe, um, on each of those sessions for the upper body, but the bulk of the session is the lower body. So you're basically getting it trained four days per week. The only issue with that is obviously you have to be very aware of, like Gary said, the crossover stuff where, you know, okay, you want to work your quads or you want to work your posterior chain, like your lower back is probably going to get hit with both of those. So we need to minimize the amount of work that's being done for that, or we need to account for that at least, you know? So in my mind, there are some relatively clear, you know, guidelines we can use 10 to 20 sets per week seems to be a good place to be at. And then with that general framework, we are modifying or allocating volume differently depending on what we actually want to work on. Like again, maybe for you, Gary, if you're like, oh, your shoulders respond really well to training. Like you don't need a huge amount of extra work for them, but maybe, I don't know, like for me, for example, like my calves just don't grow. And if I'm like, I want to grow them, I'm going to have to, first of all, prioritize them earlier in the session. And then also probably do more volume for them if I want them to actually, you know, grow. And so we can't, like, it doesn't have to be everything is at that 10 to 20 sets per week. We can allocate volume, you know, accordingly. Right. And um, the only thing I want to finish up on this discussion on saying is, and we, we probably should have just discussed it a second ago, but is this the kind of discussion of RPE and rating of, uh, or not even rating of perceived exertion reps in reserve. So rating of perceived exertion and, and then also reps in reserve. Like the first question I have for this is do our exercises need to be to failure? Like, do we need to get to failure to get results? And then as a result of the answer to that question, um, like where should we be working roughly speaking, if we're just talking again, generalized context and um, where should we be working in this kind of RPE context and or reps in reserve context? Like we don't need to, like some, some clients I don't use this stuff with some clients. I'm like, okay, we need to be at this. And it all depends on like where we are in this kind of continuum of 
progression. Like if you're able to progress week to week, like every single week is, you know, you're seeing increases in strength and whatever else is like, do we need to be using RPE or reps in reserve? Like a huge amount, maybe not. But obviously if you're like, I haven't increased my fucking bench press in six months. It's like, yeah, we probably need to use something like RPE or reps in reserve. But there are my questions, Gary. Do we need to reach failure? And what's the fucking crack with RPE and reps in reserve? Yeah, I think it's very, very hard to justify the answer that you need to take your sets to failure. Like, I just, I don't see reason for that to be the case. I think that when you look at the research, even if you, you know, don't feel it to be 100% accurate, which is probably not when we're talking about failure, to be honest. Um, it doesn't seem like um, going to failure offers much of a benefit versus leaving a couple of reps in the tank. And to be honest, this is one of those areas as well where it's actually hard to say that, oh, I'm not sure if I trust the research on that. I don't believe that they're actually going to failure. And then to come out with the opposite conclusion, because if you do say here that you don't trust they're going to failure, that even strengthens the argument for being further from failure even more, because it means that not only might they be five reps short of failure, they might be eight reps short of failure. So I think the conclusion from the research is that you definitely don't need to be going to failure for either strength or muscle building. Um, with that said, I think there's a, there are absolutely situations in which you should, um, such as testing days where you're actually testing your strength and you want to be able to use that to inform training going forward. That's not just for people who are competing. It's also for your average everyday gym goer who every now and then should actually test how many, how many reps they can do at a given weight. You know, what is your true 10 rep max? Because that'll allow you to be honest then with your RP or your reps and reserve ratings, because that's something you do see quite often is someone might be using something like reps and reserve and they'll say, oh yeah, that was two RIR. But then if they really push themselves that weight, they might have gotten six more. So having those testing days, especially if um, under the, the eye of a coach, that can definitely just um, strengthen your understanding of, of where your performance is actually at. So I don't think you need to go to failure. I think that if you look at a lot of, um, for example, the, the, Ru the Russian strength training in the Soviet era for, for wrestling, for, for off-season weightlifting, people trying to put on muscle, like you look at the training that they were doing, it's very frequently lots and lots of sets, but it's also maximal work. And you see that in lots of sports as well, where in the off season, you know, they're doing lots of sets, but it's submaximal work. They're focusing on their technique. They're keeping the reps nice and quality. Um, and they're, they're not allowing themselves to go all the way to failure. So I think that's my general perspective. You don't need to take things all the way to failure. Straight and strength conditioning secrets of the world's greatest fighters. It actually almost looks like it's in Hebrew when it's backwards on my screen. <laughs> but yeah, um, this is one of those things as well. It's like, again, this, this whole discussion comes back to, first of all, what do the reps like? What's the intensity level of those reps? Like, are we talking about failure at five reps versus failure at 25 reps? Are we talking about you're doing 20 sets per week? Like, there's so many other variables. And while, yes, we can discuss the rep, like the starting off with the rep and then the actual single set itself. Like, if you are only doing one single set, you probably do need to be closer to failure. You know, it's just yeah, a matter yeah. of fact, you're just doing less work overall. So that work needs to, you know, elicit more of an adaptation. Whereas if you're doing 20 sets, inherently you're going to need to be further away from failure because there's no one out there that's doing 20 sets to failure. And if you think you are doing that, I behoove you to go to an actually competent trainer and go, 
take me through my workout ra- uh, routine and you know actually make sure I'm doing it all correct, right? Because first of all, they'll definitely critique your technique, but also they'll be like, man, you are so far away from failure on all of those sets, you know? Because if you think you're doing 20 sets at failure, you're just not, right? Um, and I'm sure there's people out there that are like, oh, I definitely am. And I've never seen them actually play out. You know, they literally upload yeah. videos and then you're like, man, there's literally 20 reps in reserve here. Like, did you actually think that was failure? You know? Um, so that's the first thing. If you were doing less sets, you probably need to be closer to failure. But if you are in that kind of, you know, 10 to 20 rep range or 20 set per week range, you don't necessarily need to be closer to failure. Generally, I kind of use that last set of an exercise as a, a bit of a guide. You know, we should probably, in my mind at least, um, be above an RPE eight or a reps in reserve of like two for that last set, you know, as uh, fatigue has accumulated across those sets or whatever, like we probably want to be getting closer and closer to uh, failure. And especially as we go through a training block overall, like at some stage for that last set, at least like if you're doing three sets of an exercise, we probably want to get closer and closer to near failure at least you know like you probably want to at some stage like say you're doing three sets of eight you probably at some stage want to get eight reps eight reps seven reps you know like we want to know that we're getting close to failure or at least somewhat hitting failure you know and some people would disagree with that some people like to just always consistently keep you know two reps in the tank so they might go oh yeah i got eight reps there's two left two reps left in the tank I got eight reps, there's two left, two reps left in the tank. And then rather than hitting seven and being at like, you know, an, uh, zero reps left in the tank, they'll be like, no, I stopped at five, you know, because they're like, all right, so I, I'm always keeping two reps left in the tank. You know, some people will do that. It's hard to argue which is a better or a better, a better method. Um, you know, they, they realistically both work. You know, it's not a case of, oh, one is inherently a thousand times better than the other. It's probably, you know, splitting hairs in terms of what's actually going to result in a better response. And it's probably down to the individual's unique uh, mentality rather than the actual like physiology of it. It's like, do you actually like getting closer to failure? Do you like kind of pushing to that limit, you know? Um, and obviously... <clears throat> There is a much further discussion, which we probably will have in terms of how you actually set up your program. You know, are we doing one single set, getting closer to failure, maybe doing a back off set then, or are we doing like, you know, these classical like straight sets? Like, how are we actually organizing our training? Because there are other things as well that potentially modify this, such as, you know, you're doing uh, rest pause work, you know, like there's, there's different things that we potentially would modify our recommendations as a result of, right? But for now, to wrap up this podcast, unless you have anything else to say, Gary, we basically want to have that kind of RPE or rating of perceived exertion. We probably want to be at least a seven or eight for our training. I would think that would be fairly well supported by the research itself, but then also anecdotal, like everyday research people training. We probably want to be somewhere around seven or eight, maybe a little bit higher at, at times at least. And then also if we're talking about like reps in reserve, we probably want to have two reps in reserve for the majority of our training but again at some stage get to that kind of one or zero reps in reserve you know and again you can do this through you know testing days you know where you're like oh i'm gonna go in and see what my 10 rep max is my five rep max is or whatever it is or 
you can just use that last set. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a very big proponent of that last set being like, we want to eventually push that to a stage where it's kind of close to uh, failure or zero reps in reserve. That doesn't see, doesn't mean that that's your, you know, 10 rep max or whatever it is, because clearly you've accumulated volume over a training block and you've accumulated volume over that and fatigue as well over that individual session. So it's not a true 10 rep max or whatever, but it still gives us an idea of where we're at in terms of strength, especially repeatable, repeatable strength, you know, but anyway, Gary, unless you've anything else to say, wrap us up. Yep. That's it. So if you'd like to work with us and get more specific guidance on your training, you can work with our expert coaching team. Just get in touch. You can DM us on Instagram at triage method, or you can email info at triagemethod.com and you'll find information related to that below, including client testimonials from previous clients who worked with us. So get in touch for further information. We do also have a member site. It's called the Coaches Corner, where coaches can come to learn a bit more about the science and application of training, including um, how to uh, coach different exercises, the nuances of different exercises and exercise selection, anatomy, nutrition theory, etc. Okay, so get involved if you'd like to learn about that. Again, information below. We also have a newsletter which comes out each month. So the October newsletter will be out in about two weeks time. So if you're listening to this, you should subscribe and make sure that you're um, up to date on all the content we're putting out and also the resources that we're recommending. We are also all very active on social media. So triage method on Instagram. You can also follow all the individual coaches by clicking on the triage method page following, and then you'll see that we're following all of the coaches. So you can check us all out there. Skinny guys, the real Paddy Farrell, Brian O'Hengisa, and then we've got Nicholas Shane and Dean there as well. So you can check them all out. Okay. Um, other than that, guys, you can join our free Facebook group, the Triage Method Community. It's not too active at the moment, but if you want to get in there and ask us any questions, share a client case that you want us to comment on or whatever, we're more than happy to, to do that. And if you do listen to the podcast and you enjoy the podcast, share it on your story or on another social media platform that you use, or leave a rating and review if your platform allows, or even just recommend it to a friend in person. Okay. And that would be much appreciated. Help share the good word of triage. And if you do like any little segment of the podcast, mm. like we do put them up on YouTube and we do segment them out. If you're like, oh, I, w- I want to share that you know, small segment with a friend and rather than having them listen to an hour and a half podcast or whatever it is, you can be like, oh, here's the three minute segment where they talked about that shared with your friend. Because um, I know a lot of people like that and they do seem to be getting a little bit more interaction than just the, you know, here's your 90 minute or an hour podcast or whatever. Um, so if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, that's where all those videos are. Um, it helps obviously grow our business and our channel, et cetera. If you follow along, like those videos, share them, et cetera. Right. Um, but yeah, I've nothing else to say. Um, so enjoy the rest of your week, life, everything, guys. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, folks. That's Vidania.